Last week, it marked the, the time that we were starting to look at the signs that John records in his gospel. And we were in John chapter 2 then, and at the end of that, we read in John 2.11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Well, that was the first of the signs, and it was whenever he turned water into wine. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the second sign that's described in John. Now, these are the, the first two and really kind of the only two that really say, look, this is the first sign, this is the second sign. But if you keep reading, you'll find out there's more signs than just those two. But these two, they definitely specifically mention first sign, second sign, to kind of get you to realize, look, there's going to be a certain number of these signs. And they, they do have significance whenever we look at them. And this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 4. Uh, We're going to be in verses 43 through 54. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Did you notice anything kind of interesting about this miracle that that took place? Did you notice kind of like, where's the son in this story? You realize that the son is the one that is healed. However, he doesn't appear directly in the story. I mean, we we get news about it, that, that it did happen, but we never see him. Now, I'm not going to say this is the only miracle that works like this, but there's... It might be just about the only miracle, at least, that we never actually encounter the person who got healed. That doesn't take away from the power of it. I mean, after all, we've never met any of these people that the miracles happened on. But yet, it is just kind of interesting. And I think in, to a large degree, it shows about the amount of faith that is, is displayed here in this. And that most certainly is an unusual aspect of this miracle. So let's just take a little bit of a a look at this, and I just kind of want to do a a brief run-through of what we just saw here in these uh, passages. So last week we saw that first sign, and this this week we see the second sign. And there's a few interesting things about this story. We see that that Jesus knows that he is going to be rejected by a large number of people. I mean, in verse 44 it talks about how he has no honor in his own country. And this is not the only time that that statement is connected with Jesus, he knows that some people are going to doubt, that some people are going to have a problem with it. But yet in verse 45, we also see that it's very clear, these people know what he's doing. 
I mean, there's no doubt about whether or not he can do these signs, whether or not he can do these miracles, and, and whether or not he is teaching. Everybody knows it. They see them. They hear him. They know that these things are taking place because they're right there with him. You know, he doesn't do these things in secret. No, people know whenever they, they take place. And this royal official, don't you kind of wish we knew a little bit more about him? You know, like who he was and what his backstory is and why this royal official even cares about going to Jesus. But whatever the case, he's got a sick boy at home. And he wants his boy to be well. And he, for whatever reason, comes to Jesus because he knows Jesus can do something about it. And that's what he does. His boy, in verse 47, it does say that he is close to death. See, this miracle is a wonderful one because it shows the power of life that Jesus Christ has and how much control he has over life and really over death as well. Kind of a little bit of a foreshadow, if you will, of, of that Jesus, whenever he himself dies... He's going to be raised up from the dead uh, as well. He has this power. And he tells them, uh, he tells them, you know, that your son will live. And then we also see in verse 53, the timing of this miracle, you know, that the exact time. Everybody knew. There was no doubt whether or not Jesus had his hand in this. No, everybody knew. The servants knew. And this man, this royal official, he knew as well. And this was the second sign that's being described there. So now what I I would like us to do is take a little bit more of a detailed look at this story into some of the different aspects of it by asking kind of three different questions as we work through this text. Three different questions that I think are also very relevant to us, very important to us, and kind of help us see, well, what's going on in this story and, and what about us? How does this relate with us? The first question is, do you have to see signs in order to believe. You know, when you see signs, does it mean that you will believe? You know, those are kind of two, I guess, two different questions, closely connected, but they're both very important. You know, what what is this point of these signs and, and what part do they play in it all? Well, in verse 48 of this text, Jesus himself says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. Now, he says this in response to the man who's coming up to him, but his response is, unless you people. So he's no longer talking about just the man, you know, because then it would be unless you person or you know, something to that equivalent. But he says, no, unless you people. He's describing in broader terms now. He's not speaking just to this man. He's speaking to more people. And he's saying, look, unless you people see these signs and wonders that you're wanting to see, you're never going to believe. That's what Jesus says to them. But I don't think that he's making a, a permanent statement here. I believe what he's doing is he's really kind of getting on to them a bit and how much they're just kind of seeking these signs, at least how a lot of people seem to be seeking signs that Jesus would do. So today, do we have to see signs in order to believe? Well, just to kind of answer that question, I think we can go back even into the Old Testament times and we can see a lot and learn a lot about signs. For instance, when we go back during the days of, of Moses and we go to Numbers chapter 14, I want you to realize this group of individuals that we're going to take a look at this morning right now, it's the same group that came out of Egypt. They saw all those great miracles. They saw the 10 plagues. Obviously, God's hand was involved in in those. And they were also the same ones who saw that big miracle about the parting of the Red Sea. Okay, this is an important generation who saw all these wonderful signs. If you want to look at one generation in history who definitely saw God working in their lifetime, this was the generation. Yet this is the record that we have. 
Numbers 14, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? You look at this generation. They saw all these signs. They still weren't believing. So I guess we kind of have a little bit of an answer to do signs always produce belief? No, they, they don't. Do you have to see a sign in order to believe? It doesn't seem that way. It doesn't seem that way at all. When you look at this generation, we can look even more about them, by the way. Uh, Moses kind of, um, he, he asked for God's mercy on these people, and he gets it. But in Numbers chapter 14, we look on a little bit more, and, and this is just to kind of see the severity of what, what uh, the Lord is talking about here. Numbers 14, verse 19 now, we read this. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Now look at the Lord's reply in verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them, as you ask. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. Not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. And... This might be a little bit unnecessary because that was you know, pretty harsh and you kind of get the, the, the emphasis on it. But let's go just a little bit more because it gets even more direct. Verse 29. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. This is God speaking to them. He says, every one of you 20 years old or more who is counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home. Except Caleb, uh, son of uh, Jephunneh and uh, Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. So, I mean, you look at the language that God uses. I mean, it, it's, it's very plain. He is upset with these people. Does he forgive them? Yeah, he forgives them. He forgave them. But there's still consequences. And, you know, that, that's a lesson we got to learn, too. That even if you do have forgiveness from God, which you can't obtain that. But even if you have forgiveness of God, you still have to answer for what you've done. These people, this whole generation, still had to answer for what they've done. I mean, these are the guys that are known as the, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. I mean, that's kind of how we refer to this. I mean, what else do you know about this time besides they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years really so they would die out. I mean, that's what God said. It's not that they got lost. They knew exactly where they were going. In fact, they pretty much got there ahead of time, but then they still wandered around because God said, look, you're not going to enter the land. You're all going to fall in this desert. And he also gives them a time. He says in verse 29, he says that every one of you 20 years old or more. You know, this is just kind of a little bit of an interesting point, I think, and something we can learn from it. Sometimes people might ask about a phrase called the age of accountability. It's kind of not exactly a phrase you'll find in the Bible, but, but sometimes, especially today, people want to know, well, you know, at what age are we accountable for our sins? Uh, well, in this passage right here, now you might see other passages that speak a little different, a little more insight into that, but with this passage right here, God most certainly said to those people in this generation, he says, if you're 20 years old or older, I'm going to hold you responsible for your actions. So... As far as if you want to look for an age of accountability and see at what point God most certainly holds you accountable for what you do, I think
think you can at least say he does it by the age of 20. You could perhaps even say that there's even evidence that uh, he goes back a little bit more than that. But for this generation, for this incident, he said, 20 years old or older, you should know better. So I guess I'm kind of sharing this all with, with you. If you're 20 years old or older, you should know better. You know, I mean, that, that's kind of important to, to realize that. Um, yeah, I know that our, in the United States, you know, you're considered an adult whenever you're 18. Now, that, that's all well and good. But in this passage, in this incident, 20 years old is kind of this, this interesting mark there. And for some of you who might be approaching the age of 20, it's just something to seriously consider. Because these people were most certainly held accountable for everything that they did, or didn't do in this case. And, and I believe these things kind of carry over too. You know, this is still the same God that we serve. And He will hold us accountable for, for what we do. He can forgive us. Yeah, most certainly. But there still can be consequences uh, for our actions, just like they had consequences. And their consequence was they weren't going to be able to enter into this land. So, uh, do you have to see signs to believe? Some people are a little bit more about this than others. You know, some people kind of want to see more, more things from God than, than other people. Other people, they just seem like they pretty instantly just kind of believe in God and they just sort of want to believe in God and it just, it happens. The belief comes a little bit easier for certain individuals. There are other individuals who aren't always like that. For instance, let's take a look at a New Testament example just briefly. Uh, if, I, if I just say the name Thomas, you probably already in your mind are thinking doubting Thomas because that's what we know him for. Uh, it's kind of unfortunate, but it's what he's known for. It's because whenever the Lord raised up from the dead, he appeared to the apostles. And for whatever reason, Thomas wasn't in that group. And then they were all telling him, oh, look, the, the Lord, he came back and he, he appeared to us. And then Thomas just responds, well, unless I see it, I'm not going to believe it. And you might be a little bit like that too. You know, you might be a little bit like this Thomas guy. Well, Thomas eventually did have his own encounter with Jesus. He was there that next week, and, and Jesus showed himself, revealed himself, and said, look, here I am. This is the evidence you're wanting, and he, he showed him. But then Jesus takes it a step farther. And in John chapter 20, verse 29, we have these words recorded by Jesus. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I believe that this is really talking about us. You know, we haven't seen Jesus. We haven't seen a lot of these miracles that are talked about in the scriptures, but yet we can read about them and we can, we can hear about them. And we have the testimony of other people, which I believe is very reliable. I believe the Bible is very reliable to us in the New Testament. But yet we still haven't seen it ourselves, you know, but we do see that there is this blessing for those people. And Jesus knew that. And he kind of pronounces that upon us even right here. Thomas finally believed. It took him a little bit longer. We have this opportunity. We, we must believe uh, as well. So now that kind of leads to a little bit of a, another question I want us to ask as we look at this text together. Do you believe? Do you, do you believe in God and his power and also in the power of Jesus? I think most of you, that answer is pretty obvious, but it sort of helps us look at this text. When you look at verse 50 of this miracle, the second sign in John, Jesus makes this statement. He says, go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. 
By the way, that last phrase about the man took Jesus at his word, depending on your translation, or if you want to get into it, the Greek, it says that he believed Jesus. And then he, he departed. So, in other words, he did believe Jesus right there. Now, I want to remind you about this royal official, his situation. His son is sick. In fact, the language that's used is his son is close to death. He needed healing. So my question about do you believe? eh, Okay, if you were in his situation, if you go to this man who you believe can heal your son, and he tells you the phrase, go, your son will live, do you have enough enough faith to walk away and to believe him? Because that's what this man had. He had that type of faith. Because, you know, I don't know exactly what I might do in that situation, but I'm going to tell you, I would perhaps at least hesitate just slightly and think about, you know, okay, but my son needs healing. You know, he really kind of needs you. And I I would almost at least think, okay, shouldn't shouldn't you kind of at least see my son and maybe interact with him? But that's not this case. And that's not this faith that we see. This faith that this man has is he believed Jesus. And he left him at that point. He knew that Jesus was that powerful, that he could do whatever Jesus could ask for. I believe this also can tell us a great deal about um, our prayers today, that we don't always have to be right there and, and all, and because God knows, Jesus knows. But we can pray, and God can take care of those things. And just like this man, having this faith that he had, he had faith in, in Jesus And Jesus most certainly delivered in a beautiful way. And he demonstrated one of the purposes that John said, that's the whole reason why he was writing those signs. If you remember at the the end of John, John 20, verse 31, he tells us why he was recording all these signs. He says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I think we have a beautiful example of this last phrase, that by believing you may have life in his name. Because really this son... Uh, He received life. It was actually because of the faith of his own father. It wasn't really even his own faith necessarily, but it was the faith of his own father who was willing to go and talk to Jesus and ask Jesus for life because that's what that son needed. He was close to death. He needed that life, and God delivered. As we look at, at, at faith and the importance of faith, I love the example that we have all the way back uh, in um, the, the book of Genesis of kind of the first person that's sort of known as the, 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 uh, the faith father that we have, if you will. That would be Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Both of them are talked about as having a great amount of faith. In the New Testament, they are described as how much they believe God and the type of faith they had. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, it records all those great men and women of faith who in faith they did this or did that. Well, this is what is recorded with Abraham. One of the many things is recorded. Hebrews 11.8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. That's the type of faith Abraham had. Do you have that type of faith? Do you have the type of faith that whenever Jesus says, go, your son is going to be well, that you actually go? Whenever God says, I need you to go to that location, that you go wherever it is. I mean, you don't even necessarily know where that location is just yet, but God said, do it. Abraham did it. That's the example he shows. We also see the example of Sarah here in Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12 now. And by faith, even Sarah, 
who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. That's the type of faith that really both Sarah and Abraham are talked about in this verse. They had that type of faith that really the evidence at that point was pointing one direction, but they knew that their faith in God was saying, that, that's not the way that it is, that it will be great. There will be blessings that come from that. And we see more details about that as we go back to the actual account recorded in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 15, we see that this is kind of what those passages in, in Hebrews is referring to. In Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1, we read this encounter that Abraham has with God. And this time, this is even before his name was Abraham. It's back whenever he was Abram. But we read this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And in verse 4, we read this. Then the word of the Lord came to him. A son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. This is one of these beautiful passages in the Scriptures that I think had to be a wonderful moment. And I really wish that you know, we kind of sort of had the movie of, of this or whatever, the, the, the real life one you know, like that actually took place and how this conversation happened between the Lord and, and Abraham. That he is told, this man who is old, he doesn't have any kids, but he's told to look up and count the stars, which there's a lot of them especially during his day on a clear night. I mean, you know, that's one thing I kind of like. If you can get away from the, the, the lights of the city, it's amazing how many stars there are up there. And that's the world in which Abraham lived in. So he's told, look up at the stars, count them if you can. By the way, you can't, but, you know, you can try. That's how numerous his descendants are going to be. That's not what the evidence at his current day was pointing toward. He didn't have any heir of his own. He didn't have any kids. How in the world is he going to have as many as the stars? But that's what God says. And then Abraham responds beautifully, wonderfully in verse 6, that Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And then we read in verse 18 that on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land. And this whole verse, this, this whole chapter, sorry, it goes into detail about this covenant. But that was how Abraham would know that, that God is going to be faithful. There was this covenant agreement that God made with Abraham. And he said, these things that I've told you, they are going to be so. And Abraham responds that, that beautiful passage that is oftentimes quoted in the New Testament, that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the type of faith that Abraham had. So when, when I ask that question, do you believe, that's the type of faith that I'm asking if you have. Do you have that type of faith? And a related question, as we look at this, this passage again and turn our attention there, is not just do you believe, but does your family believe? And by this, I don't want you to misunderstand what I mean, okay? What I'm referring to is those people who are in your household, especially you men in the audience, it's been your God-given responsibility to 
be the, the spiritual leader of your family. So those people who are your family, your own household, do they believe? This passage of healing, this second sign in John 4, we read in verse 53 that it's not just that he believed, but his whole household, his whole household believed. Then the father realized that this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. And if you look, a lot of times when people become Christians, especially like in the book of Acts, look at the phrase household and you'll see it shows up a lot because not just one individual believed, but no, whole households were coming to believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah and that times have changed, things have changed. And in a very, very good way. And this most certainly was a correct response to, to this being this second sign that Jesus performed um, that's, that's recorded in verse 54 there. That response about a whole household believing. That's wonderful. Now, this is where I most certainly don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying about your household. Because we need to understand that even Jesus, his own family, didn't always believe. I mean, we look in John chapter 7, verse 5, and we read this about Jesus. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So by asking that question, does your family believe? I'm not asking about like, okay, well, you know, does your second cousin three times removed or whatever, do they believe? I'm, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is those people are in your own household. Those people right there, like your immediate family, the ones that you have been entrusted with, with overseeing. Do they believe? Because I believe we do have uh, not only the, the ability, but also really the responsibility to make sure that they have their faith whenever they're under our household, that they have that faith. That's the example that we see. And we see this, it's, it's not something new. This isn't something you just read about in the New Testament and then that's the, the first time you've ever heard it. No, th- this principle goes back really, 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 really far. And we can see a beautiful encounter with this this concept about whole household believing. When you look at the words of Joshua, at the very end of kind of his book, this is sort of known as his farewell address. And you'll you'll be familiar with it, I'm sure. But in Joshua 24, beginning verse 14, this is Joshua's speech to the people at a very crucial time whenever things are about to change in everybody's world. But he says this, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You probably especially know that last phrase there. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That is so crucial. You know, but it is, it is this choice that, that we all have to make, that we have to decide whether or not we are going to be faithful. And Joshua set up this statement that he said, look, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And they did. In fact, when you look at that time in history, not only Joshua and his, and his whole family uh, served the Lord, his whole household served the Lord, but also like everybody else agreed too at that time. It was a great time in history. Like this is one of those great motivational speeches that really worked. And like we see people really turning to the Lord. But eventually, in the next generation, they started falling away again now. So that, that kind of reminds us that we 
are entrusted with right here, right now, the decisions that we need to make, that we've got to choose it. But the next generation, they've got to choose it too. You know, it's kind of a continual thing that we always have to be the ones who will continue to remind people, look, you've got to choose today whom you're going to serve. Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve somebody else or something else? There are a lot of different options that you can take, but there's not one half as good as serving God. That's the only option that's going to produce life, that's going to produce eternal life. That's the only one. And that was Joshua's point whenever he was making that statement. Yeah, you can choose to worship some other God. It's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well for anybody who does that. Joshua knew, and he was asking all of them to choose the same pathway as what he was. So kind of in concluding, just to kind of think about these these questions again, does your faith depend on God doing some miracle for you? Some people, that means a little bit more to them than others. You know, signs and stuff, it means a little bit more to others. But I want to remind you of this. I believe that He has already done the greatest miracle that you will ever see, that you or I will ever see. And that is the miracle of salvation. And, you know, as you look at what is or, or what, is a, what is not a miracle, I think that, that how salvation comes to us and how we can be washed clean in the blood of Jesus, you know, our sins washed away, all of that is a huge miracle. I mean, it's most certainly completely supernatural. It's something that we can see that is a beautiful thing in which uh, Jesus has provided for us. So if your faith depends on some miracle, uh, he, he's, he's already given you that miracle. You know, the, the ability to be saved today. That's wonderful. And since he's already done that, and since he's done everything necessary for you to be saved, I mean, he's already done his part. Now it's just up to you as to, to whether or not you will follow through with it. But since he's already done that, do you believe in this one true and living God of the Bible? Because there is no God like him. He's the only one that's like him. Okay? None, none, none other pathway is going to lead to life like the one that following, uh, following God, the, the one true and living God of the Bible. And also, can you say, just like Joshua, that as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, this is entirely your choice, just like it was Joshua's choice and just like it was the choice of all the people before him. That's entirely your choice to be that dedicated to following the Lord. But will you choose to be that dedicated? And not just today, but for the rest of your life.